You're listening to an ACA podcast. So hello, my name is Miriam Kelly and I'm the Senior Curator at the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art and I'll be your host for today's discussion about two major new works of public art at University Square in the Melbourne suburb of Carlton. We'll talk about these works and we'll also hear about the approach that City of Melbourne are taking, a new approach to commissioning art in the public realm. I'm really honoured to welcome back to ACA uh, to our public programs, the artists Michaela Dwyer and Sean Lynch, and also thrilled to be joined for this session by poet Alicia Sometimes. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, who are custodians of the lands from which I'm joining you today, and also uh, on which University Square is located. I would also like to extend my respects to ancestors and elders, past and present, and to all First Nations people who are tuning into this program now and later via the podcast. Today's program is presented by ACCA in association with the City of Melbourne, who support ACCA's programs more broadly. But City of Melbourne are also one of our valued cultural partners for the current exhibition, Who's Afraid of Public Space? Who's Afraid of Public Space is a multifaceted project. It includes exhibitions and events and programs that explore the role of public culture the contested nature of public space, and the character and composition of public life in Melbourne. Who's Afraid of Public Space is organised according to a dispersed and distributed structure. In addition to the exhibition and events at ACCA, the project also extends across Melbourne with a number of off-site projects in the wider public realm, online projects, and also through a series of satellite exhibitions which have been developed by or in collaboration with our cultural partners. You can find out more about the whole project and view a map of the extensive project listings on the ACCA website at ACCA.Melbourne. Uh, our Public Programs Coordinator, Bianca Winata-Putri, is popping that link in the chat now. So while Sean Lynch and Michaela Dwyer's new City of Melbourne commissions are not formally part of the ACCA exhibition, they do exemplify an array of the critical topics raised in the discussions we have been having about public space and public art. Today's forum will include short presentations by each of our speakers, and then we'll open up to questions. Throughout the talks, please send your questions via the Q&A function, which you can find in your menu bar below the Zoom window, and we'll try to capture them all at the end. I'll introduce our speakers one by one uh, between their presentations. And so, Alicia, it's my great honour to welcome you uh, as our first speaker. Alicia, sometimes, is a Melbourne-based writer and broadcaster. Alicia has performed her spoken word writing and poetry at many venues, festivals, and events around the world. She is director and co-writer of the science poetry planetarium shows titled Elemental and Particle Wave. Alicia's 2019 TEDxUQ talk addressed the combination of art with science. Among her many accolades, Alicia received the 2020 Bruce Dorr Poetry Prize and in 2021, she completed the Boyd Garrett Residency for the City of Melbourne. Alicia, you have been involved in these public art projects uh, you, throughout the, the course and your striking poetic response to Michaela's work is also accessible uh, on the City of Melbourne project webpage. Um, thank you so much for speaking to, to us uh, today about your work and your engagement with this commissioning process. Thank you. 
Thank you, Miriam. It's so good to be here. And I'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land that I'm speaking to from today, uh, the Bunurong Boonwurrung and Wurundjeri Woiwurrung peoples of the East Kulin Nation. And I pay my respect to their elders past, present and emerging. And I'd also like to acknowledge that they're the first artists and scientists of the land as well. So it has been an interesting ride to be asked to be part of this as I'm not a visual artist myself. And I'd love to give you a little bit of a background before we hear from these incredible artists and, and talk about their work. So um, the City of Melbourne had an intensive creative development workshop in 2019 with Sean Lynch and Michaela Dwyer, who were to make temporary works for the University Square site in Carlton. And there was also a beautiful mix of other creative minds. So the team from the Creative Urban Places, City Design Studio, the Public Art Advisory Panel, also selected was a diverse array of other artists and thinkers and traditional owner groups, all to facilitate the engagement with University Square site. And as most of you know, the construction and change has been taking place in this square for quite a while and is still taking place in the square and it's undergoing transformation as the Metro Tunnel project continues. And I want to say, uh, first of all, that um, John Cunningham, the head of Creative Urban Places, who I like to call um, his superhero power is the manifester because he makes so many things happen. And Liz Fenwick, who's uh, the public art project lead, are two integral people, along with, of course, many, many people from the City of Melbourne and further afield who've made this happen. But these two came to me and uh, said that they would like me to be part of these intensive workshops um, that had incredible speakers. And I'll talk to more of this in a second, but I just wanted to mention that it was a two-week period where Michaela and Sean were basically the audience, the participants, the stars and those who sat in the background writing notes were in the foreground having great discussions and so forth. So it was a really fascinating array of people. So some of these speakers included Jeffa Greenaway, Director of Greenaway Architects, Chair of Indigenous Architecture and Design Victoria, talking about public spaces and the way architecture can mould a city. There was ecologist Lee Harrison giving essential background on the possums and trees, revered playwright and former director of the Sydney Festival, Wesley Enoch, inspiring us with reflections on the public realm. Professor Mark McMillan uh, talking about Coolin intelligence and the role of the public art advisory panel. Warwick Padgham from the Poach Centre for Indigenous Health talking about his work and also taking us on Billaberry's walk at the uh, University of Melbourne. Professor Lars Conan spoke of the Melbourne Innovation District. Uh, Professor Stephanie Trigg about the Bluestone and its importance to Melbourne's story. And so we walked through the city's laneways, looking up, looking down, and spent a great deal of time at University Square, of course, and we cooked and ate together, quoted philosophy, poetry, ruminated about ideas, high concepts, and we laughed a lot. 
And of course, uh, this whole time we talked about space and what public art meant in the realm. And as I talk about the workshop ideas, I just want to show you some pictures from, from that time, um, which uh, are quite interesting. Um, so you have there, uh, there's a picture of Liz and Sean and Michaela talking. So that was at, uh, we met at the meat market and we uh, were talking about all different areas. There's Sean talking about his art with a beautiful artwork at the back. And so we had this kind of little mini festival and there's Wesley Enoch with John Cunningham, Liz on the other side. Um, I love this photo because Liz and John are taking notes and we all took notes and I've recently gone back over my notes from this time and it was just a rich period of thinking, of um, marinating with ideas and um, I think every one of us, no matter where we came from, came away inspired and took notes constantly. There's beautiful Michaela talking about her work and her processes and this is ecologist Lee Harrison talking about the possums and um, I love there the intent uh, look on Michaela and Sean's faces and I love that every moment I'd sort of sneak a peek and I think they they can talk more to this but they were sort of taking everything in in a really interesting way. There's some of the, the trees at uh, the site. This is from 2019, just some interesting views. There's the laneways uh, that we're looking up and you can see um, us all walking around looking at different things. And of course, we talked about bluestone, which was really interesting. So every facet of um, these, these workshops were literally from the ground up talking about the meaning of, of stone, the meaning of streets, the meaning of space, and um, the developing and changing architecture, how the, the, the way the city moves and changes. And um, these are just some interesting shots. And, of course, this is from the law building. So this is 2019. It's changed somewhat. Um, it's got Michaela and Sean's artwork up right now, but that was just a little snapshot from that time. So, um, yeah, I just wanted to show you that. And the, so the workshop ideas uh, the City of Melbourne said was that they wanted to have a grounding and cooling intelligence and a desire to progress a shared cultural understanding of the public realm at University Square a recognition of the rich and meaningful history of the site to create bold and immersive uh, experience of the site to offer a challenge, whether playful, educational, poetic, didactic, subversive, or all of those, engaging speakers and artists to think about the site, consider different perspectives on the role that public art plays in within the landscape and facilitate unexpected interactions that produce new narratives about the city and this is what really got me because the meetings that I had was okay what we really want you to do is to facilitate these talks that were really beautifully set up by the team and we just want you to sort of create conversations and I kept saying and then what and then and then you'd like me to do x y and z and they said no no we just want facilitation we want ideas and I think that I, I I can't speak to Michaela or Sean but I was very very shocked in the best possible way that this was completely true 
to their word and best practice, that it was about getting the artists in, not with preconceived ideas, but just this dialogue that was going to happen where the artists just got to learn every um, aspect of University Square, of the landscape around them, and um, just immerse themselves in in this learning so this was just a completely and beautiful positive and uplifting experience for me I came away inspired I you know wrote many poems on the space but also just to watch Michaela and Sean work as well and to see their final pieces has been breathtaking just the way you know, I, I wasn't there for the, the middle parts of all, all their work or the end of their work, but just to see that little seeds at the start and the questions that they asked, the interrogations, the mindfulness that they came to this project with and just the warm atmosphere around that I can't praise the city of Melbourne enough to be an artist in that space and to have that warmth and support and nurturing. And that's how often as artists do we get nurtured? And I think that was a key takeaway. So to all the city of Melbourne team, um, I just can't thank you enough. And I just want to praise the two beautiful pieces, Apparition and Distant Things Appear Suddenly Near. And uh, Sean and Michaela will talk, of course, about the collaborations. But I wanted to just leave you with two poems. Um, Michaela's heard her poem Apparition about her piece, but I've also written something to Sean's piece uh, because it inspired me so greatly. Um, so this piece, they're very short, but uh, apparition after Michaela's piece, which is just exquisite. Bones of these elms contain short stories crinkled in their arms. The grass has cradled the weight of woodlands nurtured by peoples of the eastern Kulin nation, epoch upon epoch bustling with life in the surrounds. Now, Paragraphs of buildings diverge and assemble at the edges. Ex exclamation marks to ongoing conversations with expansion and change. Lay down with me and watch the sky. Notice the world melting into everything spherically. There are no sides, only the sun warming the earth at the foot of the drinking fountain and the ghost of the blue gums shivering in the wind. We often take awe for granted, the space between the stars, the notes we don't hear, the moments in between things. The human being as tree, explorer, the barefoot wanderer, people make great punctuation marks, an endless chorus of ellipses. We imagine these nights here where art frolics wildly in the park, boundless and unfolding, and these possums are under the moon, conversing until dawn in the shadows. And I'll leave you with this piece, Distant Things Appear Suddenly Near, for Sean Lynch. Time, in its falling, is taken from our mouths and relinquished to the land. This elegy of terrain allows the past to seep in, awake of dissolving lodgings, how the tides of shapes reframe the circular cadences of growth and deconstruction, dream blurred, earthly interstices amongst the expanse. Space in its reflection 
is retold in collaborations and imprinted into our minds, a slow sleep of imaginings. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much, Elisa. That was incredible. Um, your enthusiasm and um, generosity are infectious. Um, I really enjoyed hearing about that process. Um, it gives me great pleasure now to introduce Sean Lynch. Sean, uh, Sean you're joining us this morning for you um, from your home in Limerick in Ireland. Um, and here's your brief introduction, Sean. Your works, uh, you work with sculpture and installation, video and publication. And of course, you're one of Ireland's most well-regarded contemporary artists. In 2015, Sean represented Ireland at the Venice Biennale. Other major recent solo exhibitions have been presented at the Edinburgh Art Festival in 2021, Henry Moore Institute in Leeds in 2019, and at the Douglas Hyde Gallery in Dublin in 2017. Alongside Michelle Horrigan, Sean also works at Ash. Ash sorry, Askeaton Contemporary Arts, which is an artist-led residency, commissioning and publication initiative in the west of Ireland. And Sean, when we last had the privilege of hearing from you at ACCA, we received this beautiful line in your biography, so please excuse me for reading it again. Sean Lynch is interested in loose ends within stories, the lost footnotes and how to mediate their practice. And Sean, um, this sentiment is very much uh, still within your stunning, evocative and theatrical piece, um, Distant Things Suddenly Appear Near, which is a new multi-part installation in the University Square um, commissioned by City of Melbourne, which you haven't yet seen in person, but we hope soon to have you here in Melbourne again. Um, Sean, thank you so much for joining us. I look forward to hearing about your process. Thanks so much, Miriam. And Alicia, thank you for the lovely poem. Um, it's very incredible. To, to understand how an artwork morphs into a piece of a poem and back again into a sculpture. And for me, that's very interesting um, how things move from one thing to another. And I, I, in many ways is the basis, I suppose, of the artwork that was realized in, in University Square in December time. Um, I have 10 minutes. I'm going to straight away start showing um, some images of the work and uh, talk through it as best I can as a descriptive from someone who's never actually seen the piece for real but has spent an awful lot of time thinking about it in the last three years. Um, super. Uh, so, so the work is entitled Distant Things Appear Suddenly Near. Um, Here's a view uh, looking northwards up to the north eastern part of University Square. Um, I suppose to give a kind of very brief um, description of of the location, um, all the time considering that our, the forms of memory and knowledge that we have often forget many moments of lived life in different places, but. This is what I can tell you about this location. Um, when you think of University Square as an indigenous landscape, you'd have had water running down from much of this location as a tributary for the Yarra River. Um, when urban development of Melbourne became the modality for the site, uh, the, the University Square would have been a place where night soil was deposited uh, in lieu of any sewerage system that houses would have had at the time. Um, then there was a bowling green on the location 
you had elm trees um some of them are still there um a larger ensemble of them made the shape of a union jack flag when looked at from above um and the site that you see here uh was developed um in the early 2000s um as a park that cap that caps a multi-story car park under under a ground car park underneath and um in some way it's aged in a wonderfully bad way a lot of that location and there's plans for the redevelopment of that site into the future when all this building site that you see in the background here is also finished and there's a metro workstation so when you put all of that together i suppose how an urban um theorist would describe a location like this is that it's brittle um it, it things come and go to the location uh, um, there's no sense of um a constant sense of renewal uh on the location rather um it's been bargained with, improvised all the time in terms of the modalities of a city that's based on a capitalist regime. Okay. And uh, I became really interested in thinking about this way of working um, and how that um, in these processes of how cities uh, understand themselves and then re-understand themselves through building developments through types of public art that are seen and understood in, within their uh, boundaries um, and within the more incidental engagements one has in terms of the shape of the city, how some of those elements could be brought to this location. And uh, so I, I guess I was thinking a lot about a flashback or this area being a magnet for in some way objects that were not um, available to see in the city or had disappeared over time for various reasons and a little bit thinking a lot about archaeology as well but not in an imperialist sense like um, more so like a rag and bone man or a, a scrap merchant a, scra a scrap dealer i guess you know and they were just some of the thoughts that have been developed in terms of thinking about the piece and exploring a lot of the infrastructure and, and fabric of Melbourne in the last couple of years. So what you see here to start talking a little bit about some of these images, um, what you see here is uh, a scale replica of the Corkman bar. Uh, the Corkman existed about maybe 150 metres away from this location on the southeast part of University Square. It was illegally demolished in 2016 by two property developers who um, did it over a, a weekend and uh, then want, and I still believe, still want to build a uh, 12 or 13 storey high apartment block on the site. So the story is one that anybody who lives in areas that are being uh, gentrified or urban renewal happens a lot. It's a very archetypical story. Um, and so uh, somehow the Corkman reappears very close to the site as a ghost of its former presence. Um, it's not a heritage object. It didn't want to make it like that, that it would look exactly how the Corkman would look. It's built with shuttering. 
timber uh, panels that say more at home in terms of the building site behind it. Um, and you can walk in and around this area. The doorways are quite small, but you can still somehow fit through them. Um, and then behind it, you see a, a collection of uh, other elements, which have some of them, for example, these are some of the old elm trees that were removed from the, um, the site in 2017. They've been reintroduced. Um, they're free, I'd like to think, from their colonial function, where they made the shape of the Union Jack. Instead, they hold up, they're used as ballast to hold up the Corkman structure and also have a sense of, um, like it's a retirement home for them, the park now in some way. And I'm always interested in thinking in that sense about the character of sites and how to uh, how people and how objects move in and out of them in terms of personalities and traits. Um, this is another view. Uh, and what you can see here is a work by Hussein Valamanish, who very sadly passed away a couple of weeks ago. Um, and I've worked a lot with Hussein in the last year and a half. Uh, he made a piece uh, in 1996 that was placed um, uh, near the south bank by the river Yarra uh, called Fault Line. Um, and for me, in many ways, um, I've been very interested in thinking about public art as a continuity rather than the notion when a public art commission would come along that you'd necessarily make something um, new, um, realized as a new thing. That instead, it's much more interesting to think about lineages and heritage and how what one person did in terms of making a piece of public art 25 years ago becomes incredibly influential in terms of how another artist would come along to the same situation decades later. Uh, Hussein's work, um, some of it was removed in the mid-2000s and put in storage. And uh, I just became, uh, had a chance encounter in the archive, um, the city archives and learned about the piece. And so um, Hussein and I spent a lot of time thinking about how it could be reincorporated into another site. And again, have another life where it moves from outside of a storage situation back into the city and can again give to the civicness and criticality of understanding a location and place. So in those terms, there's a cast of Hussein's body uh, on a plinth. Uh, there's uh, an oar and a bronze boat nearby. They were both very important elements of the work uh, from 1996 and then a submerged pier. And then you see these two um, uh, scavenged pieces that would have been used for antique streetlights in the city that were used as an entranceway into this particular area of the work. Um, just going to try and show a few images, a few more images. Um, Again, I'm always believing a little bit about setting up frameworks for how to try and be an artist. So you come along with an idea, which is to think about the objects and attitudes and thought patterns that have fallen out of view 
in one sense in terms of the cityscape and how to reintroduce them and how they could disrupt certain normative values of how cities behave nowadays. Um, but it's also these frameworks and systems are set up so that uh, they don't become like a rule and uh, the only way of working something, but also to know that chance and unusual situations might occur during their making. And um, especially so the last two years where um, I'm, a lot of artists who I know have talked a lot about how you have to improvise to make shows nowadays and there's a lot less control from the point of view of what you think should be done. And uh, this was one of the really open situations in terms of the commission here because it was so intensely process-led um, that so many people contributed in different ways to it and made micro decisions that then add up into these particular aesthetic presentations or um, conceptual positions to take. Uh, so uh, I did not know what would, how the elm trees would appear on the site, you know, so they disappeared for three years, were bleached out by the sun, um, returned there, you can see the bark is uh, half falling off some of them. Another element was with introducing these large concrete ballast blocks which were needed to hold up the structure. That was a, a decision was made quite late um, but again had a certain functionality to it. Um, here's another view you can see of the site um, and how these different objects interact in, in, in um, different ways and that there's an opportunity to drift from one situation to another. Um, your movements are not so dictated, I'd like to think, on the location. You can come in and out of the pub facade. There's possibilities of moving around Hussein's work. There's some landscaping elements that um, also acknowledge the early 2000s design of the location. Um, and one particular thing I enjoyed a lot, um, and I should give great credit to Liz Fenwick for this, was um, how much time and opportunity we got to scavenge in the city's depots. Um, here's a, 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 a replica or a similar cast iron feature that would be seen on the Princess Street Bridge. We found one of these in storage and moved it down to University Square. Um, my friend Nick took this photograph over Christmas. The bollards that you see here, some of them are antique bollards, uh, but you have these more contemporary issue pieces as well. Um, and I like it, of course, it's a little bit of a joke that it looks like the work is still being installed or in progress or that whoever's making it has taken their lunch break and they might come back later on and finish it in some way or other. Um, again, that's another view of the Corkman and the great job that Mark Nielsen and his team made of installing that work and realizing it in that location. Uh, there's also, um, when we came by a lot of the images of the Corkman, we started seeing that it had a lot of ivy growth on some parts of the facade. And so 
over time in the next 18 months you'll see uh, the planting and some ivy taking over a lot more of the location and bedding into the university square site. Um, just want to say something about Hussein. Um, I came to him about 18 months ago or even a little bit longer with a very speculative proposal from very far away from someone who we didn't know or was not in a peer group or my work wouldn't be very well known in Australia or anything. And uh, the generosity he showed to me and um, in terms of how his work was incorporated into the installation in University Square um, the kindness he gave uh, towards me as a person during the lockdown and the lovely chats we had were very important uh, not simply for the execution of the piece but for my own morale as an artist in the last couple of years and um, you know it's one of the things about making art which is you kind of live your life through it and a lot of the time you live your life through other artists' perspective and their artworks and how they understood situations before and after you. And uh, this was uh, an earlier piece that Hussein made in 1980, um, which is um, an enlarged reproduction of his fingerprint onto the ground at La Trobe University. And um, he made many, many important public artworks all over Australia, as you know, and this is just one that I've been thinking about a lot lately that explains so much about our presence on the earth and the relationships we have to the ground uh, and how that changes over time and what is our understanding or responsibility or trajectory for that. So in some ways, I suppose, uh, that was one of the ideas of this artwork, distant things appear suddenly near, that it would be able to extend itself um, into situations as an open research process, that there would be a lot of inputs and a lot of conversations throughout that. The resulting artwork is just an experiment in one way because um, you know, it really depends on like who answers the phone in the city of Melbourne on one particular day, what door can be open to whatever place to find something, or it's so much circumstance is there in the making of any artwork. And I'd like to think that there could be many, many versions of distant things appear suddenly near. This is just one of them. And, I'm very happy to explain it and I hope you enjoyed some of those images now. Thanks. Thank you so much, Sean. That was wonderful hearing of the, the layers of histories and relationships and, and your approach to land and space too. Thank you so much. Look forward to chatting further. Um, it's really great now um, to introduce uh, Michaela, our, our last speaker for today. Um, Michaela, hi. <laughs> Michaela Dwyer is one of Australia's most well-regarded uh, contemporary artists, currently based in Melbourne. Michaela works in sculpture, Oops. painting and performance. 
and always responsive uh, to site and context, Michaela Dwyer's works explore how we relate to the object world and her projects invite open-ended interaction and take their audiences across boundaries of time, space and geography. Her work has been included in, uh, has been a subject of major solo exhibitions at the Art Gallery of New South Wales, the Museum of Contemporary Art in Sydney, the Museum of New Zealand, Te Papa Tongarewa, the Institute of Modern Art in Brisbane and, of course, at ACCA here in Melbourne. Michaela has also realised a number of major, major public art commissions in Sydney and Melbourne and is uh, also in New York uh, with Swamp Sculpture in 2006 for the Omi Sculpture Park. But today, Michaela, it's wonderful to have you to talk um, about your work, Apparitions, which is a magnificent media installation visible mostly after dark in two of those large trees that we've just heard about um, in University Square. Thank you so much, Michaela. Thank you, Miriam. And um, thanks, Sean. That was really beautiful to hear all about that amazing work. And um, thanks to Alicia also. I, um, I knew something was up when we got invited into that um, exhibition and we all that process and we ended up in um, a boardroom with a poet and it was incredible who does that only people I like Sean um, to have like all these amazing people in the room and have um, the fabulous John Cunningham and Liz Fenwick but to have a poet emceeing it or sharing it was just extraordinary because she was able to, Alicia was able to, every day after these very rich, complex conversations, somehow distill um, things into the most beautiful language. And I think that's how we process things at a very deep level because we had a poet guiding us. Um, it was just wonderful. And as... I'm so glad Alicia's been able to describe the process because it was really special. I've never experienced a public art commission like that before. And um, the people that we were able to sort of uh, listen to and um, sorry, I'm just going to share the screen while I'm ranting on here. Um, uh, yeah, this, this sort of a... Um, very magical and wonderful experience, which gave us time unheard of in public art commissioning. You know, normally it's a plonker that they give you six weeks in a competition, but in this instance we were given time to, to think and listen and hear about the site. And um, But, uh, yes, as Sean also said we've got 10 minutes, so I'll try to cut to the chase a bit. I mean, I got, um, you know, we got shown so many amazing things and listened to so many people, but I sort of got really obsessed with the possum because um, I got listening to Lee Harrison, who is the environmental scientist, and Nawi, Dr. Carolyn Briggs, both talking about possums. And in that park in University Square, those elm trees were home to these to this population of possums that were either too many of them or too not not enough of them according to whoever was kind of looking at them. Um, but that yeah, there, it, it was a sort of troubled population of possums, and that became my sort of starting point 
was to think about, I guess, um, extinction in a way. It's a quite a sort of um, creepy park in winter with those elm trees that were all sort of amputated and, you know, the, the whole scenario with the, you know, the law building and the, the construction that was going on and these sort of big black kind of um, rotting elm trees that were sort of people worried they're going to break off and kill people and stuff. And then these little possum houses sort of tied up to the trees. So that sort of got me thinking but listening to Lee Harrison from a kind of Western medicine, medical or Western scientific perspective saying that the way to sort of most humanely deal with the possum overpopulation was to sterilise them and sort of wind the population down because you can't just move them. They get quite stressed just being moved into another community and another community of possums doesn't necessarily want more interlopers. So, And then listening to Nawi, Dr Carolyn was really interesting because she had a lot of stories about possum ragu from a restaurant she ran and serving this possum ragu or, or possum cloaks or, you know, hunting them. But now the place to get possum coat skins is you've got to go to New Zealand because it's not legal to hunt them or kill them here. So just this really interesting, conflicting kind of approaches to this strange urban poppin, pop, possum population. So... Um, apparition was the thing I came up with was a way I, I guess when you think of possums being this difficult population um, these beautiful cute things that you want to feed which is apparently really bad to feed them on one hand and then other people feed them you know it's just so much I suppose emotional investment in these creatures because they're so cute but also they're such a but also they're really, it's their, it's their place. I think we're, you know, we're the sort of interlopers. So I mean, we're thinking about them and thinking about a kind of um, a way of um, thinking about them as a, as a ghost, um, like that they might come from the future back to tell us to warn us perhaps of, of their extinction and also our own extinction. Um, so I created these projections with um, an animator, Gina Moore. We couldn't actually get a film crew out at that time. It was in lockdown. So we ended up building a possum. So it's a sort of deep fake possum that sits um, there's two of them that sit in the trees and come on at night. So I guess in a sense also as a public artwork, it's something that's quite um, quiet in a way. It doesn't, it's not really that visible unless you're walking past at night and you um, you sort of tend to, it catches you just in the corner of your eye. It's not, um, it was sort of intended to be a very kind of um, light-footed sort of uh, public artwork. And these are just some working drawings just to describe um, how deeply fake they are and how they're built from geometry, really. And um, But how working with Gina, who's also an artist um, and has a particular gift for bringing life to 
you know, particularly animal life to sort of triangles, squares and cubes and geometry. Um, you know, it's really this process of trying to understand perhaps like this bleak idea of an extinction, but which, you know, you might think as a sort of apocalyptic end to some a species, but thinking, okay, but what about the distance between here and then? Where is it possible to be playful in that space and um, try to sort of create something that maybe is a way of thinking more laterally about things? Um, so yeah, so and part of, part of the this interest in the apparition too was this um, mythologizing of um, an image and you know, thinking about the Virgin Mary or, you know, the way that it sort of would should pop up in various sites around the world, you know, and especially in relation to famines or um, wars or, you know, like whenever there's a kind of a human need for some something magical or supernatural or religious to happen as a way of gathering people you know, I guess there's a kind of a, a need for faith or some or belief kind of um, built up. But and the way these stories start to build into mythology. So in this instance, I was asking um, a group of Mandarin speaking students to come and help build uh, a kind of a storytelling that would maybe grow into a kind of um, mythologizing so we set about enlisting the help of um, about 10 uh, Mandarin speaking students from the area because there's a very um, there's a lot of Chinese students in this area and we, we were sort of beginning to set up a, a kind of gossip chain uh, through social media WeChat to kind of um, see if we could build this story up I think this also what Sean was saying about this um, the very rich and broad collaborative nature of this process was just extraordinary. Like it was so different to you know the sort of usual singular um, you know competitive type of commissions. This one was just you know just deeply generous and in, in its thinking and you know that ideas were kind of paramount into and shared ideas and how to generate a relationship and, um, and consider a, a kind of a deep listening to the site was really, you know, just to, to hear so many viewpoints of it and also just to work with when you have so many brilliant minds working together, you can't help but generate things into more things and, um, I guess from, from that work, I started to think more and more about these possibilities of very sort of, um, so I've been sort of, that it's sort of branched off into other animals. So this is a koala that was out at Monash that's kind of um, another work that's kind of come out of this process. And um, I'll see that. I just... But again, uh, the koala is quite emblematic, I guess, of a, a kind of 
you know, an anxiety about extinction too, since the bushfires has kind of wiped out so many. So these animals are sort of designed, you know, we build them up to be quite um, singular and uh, symbolic in a sense that they become, and then and, and and now a pigeon, also. And the pigeon has just recently had a visit to um, Gertrude Street. And this pigeon shifts in and out of its the making of it, which is you know the ge- the geometry of it. So it sort of um, becomes a bit mesh-like and has all its little uh, coding. Um, tags on it which appear in a minute I think yeah so you'll see those and so it's, I guess it's like trying to think well what happens when animals have gone what you know we might just be left with these sort of renders so if you pre-ghost them maybe we you know these ghosts have a, a, a message to bring back and then this go this um, same pigeon was in Gertrude recently and Birds kept flying in, I think, wanting to save it or something. We had three birds come in, smashing up against the glass and getting stuck in there, trying to sort of visit these pigeons because there was two in the rafters. And then also the owner turned up with, um, you know, to complain because somebody had said, oh, they're keeping Gertrude Street, they're keeping pigeons in the rafters now. You know, you've got to go and sort them out. So the owner of the building had come in and said, you know, I've heard there's, you're, you're keeping real, you know, pigeons in the room. I was quite relieved, I think, to hear that it wasn't a real one. And then the koala has ended up on a building in Sydney on a, a different kind of screen and LED. It's a really bad image, but it's not quite finished yet. So, but the koala. So the, these um, supernatural animals are, are all mutating into different places and I really bring that back to this incredible and the next one will be a seahorse working on another work but um, I think that's the nature of this really fantastic process that you know Lisa and John were running with all these people and and to get to meet Sean and, you know, and Alicia, and then it's generative. It's a really wonderful, fertile kind of practice. And, um, yeah, thank you. Amazing, Michaela. Thank you so much. Um, I don't think I'll ever forget hearing about words playful and apocalypse in the same <laughs> sentence um, <laughs> but it's so wonderful to hear too about the the way you've um, worked with the residents in generating that mythology I think that's that's a really interesting way of working but I also really enjoyed the um the links between your works in terms of the apparitions and the ghosts and the memories and and warnings from the future there's a beautiful kind of resonance um, between the two two works there there's also such an, an incredible narrative around time. Um, and I wondered if you might um, just briefly, both of you talk to the experience of um, obviously working over such an extended period of time on the projects, but with the um, kind of knowledge that it's a two year project and how whether that came into the discussions from the outset or, or that informed your thinking or whether that became a, you know, a background thought in the process. 
Maybe um, Sean first. <laughs> the very pleasant thing, um, I suppose, about that work in process was that uh, there was very, um, most of the time, there was very little discussion or um, thought about anything concrete for a long time. Um, so it was never even a two-year process, you know. Um, it was just something that was leading onto some situation. And um, I suppose at one particular moment, there's always a thing where you're wondering if the work is going to begin to reduce itself because you've worked it up so far. And then there's always that tr tradition or pitfall when you're an artist that um, you begin to polish the thing that you've made and it gets smaller and smaller the more polishing that you do <laughs> till you're left with something uh, a lot less, you know. Um, so there was never that situation occurred or no pressures like that or whatnot. Um, I suppose one, one of the really, um, one of the things that I took to heart a lot was um, conversations about the rhythm of time in an indigenous manner mm. and what was told to me about the seven generations, three generations before yeah. you and three generations after you and that being an understanding of situations that affect you and that you can affect into the future and once you hear about stuff like that then that um, takes out of your mind concerns around your schedule for next Thursday or whatever. <laughs> you know, that's um, put it, it's put in its place, I suppose, is what I'm saying. So that, that would be just what I would say in regards to time, yeah. Yeah, yeah Michaela. I would agree that I think it was definitely that seven generations of time was very... Um, so such a profound thought that, yeah, I think that, yeah, it's funny. I was sort of the opposite. Normally I do really, you know, I, I find it really hard to polish anything because I just keep, you know, waffling on and on. But it was strange. I think given the freedom of, and the, of time in this context, you know, I came up with this really simple idea quite quickly and I, and then it took a very long time to actually work out how to do it. But, like, it, it was, I think it, this space of having time gave me an immense amount of freedom to come up with something just kind of, like, just kind of came out of nowhere. But then but the time to develop it and, like, I couldn't believe what a simple, how complex it was to, to make a simple idea manifest like and the amount of people and equipment and you know lifters and you know high you know high tech projectors and you know amazing amounts of people go to you know making something so unbelievably simple happen you know but it that there was something you know just in the the scope of you know like the whole process was just um, it was so liberating to to actually work it, you know, like where you're not asked to make a big plonker of something that's got to last 20 years or it's got to be there, it's got to be durable weather. You know, like there was a really to experiment with new materials and new ways of doing things and 
and time and to to do something in time that temporal you know a temporal work that yeah it was re- it was really um opened up you know a whole new thing it was amazing yeah amazing thank you both um alicia you you made a really a beautiful statement in your list of things that you discussed over the course of the initial conversations, but I hope you don't mind me drawing out. One of the things you you mentioned was the role public art plays in the city was one of your discussions. And I, I wondered whether maybe this relates a little bit to a question we've got coming through from the audience, but maybe if you um, had any considerations that really stuck with you from that conversation that you might share. Yeah, there were so many different things about the way that we think about negative space, the way that we think about what we walk through. Um, you know, Michaela talked about peripheral vision, um, the way that it changes our moods, the way that it can affect the way we think about a space and the way we interact and immerse ourselves in a space. And sometimes that's a really obvious thing to think about, but um with things evolving and changing and that's uh the one thing that I took away from uh Michaela and Sean's work is just that ephemeral kind of changing of of the space and conversations and you know I'm a poet words get stuck in my head so much but just the conversations that happened around it I stood back and watched Michaela's poem work at night and just listening to all the people talk about it and just standing to the sides as people sort of navigated through Sean's work and and when you talked about the bollards I think it was even the mayor was like can't we get that you know out because we you know it's temporary it was annoying people and it gets under your skin and I think that public art can be just so emotive and um and, and, and poetic so that's what I love about it. Yeah, amazing. Um, We've had a question from Damien from the audience um, about the rhythms of the work, which I think sort of ties nicely into what we've been just discussing about the pub and the apparition being um, things that would become active at night time. You touched on night time a little bit, Alicia. Um, uh, The question is really, um, you know, how has that kind of um, differentiated the thinking or, you know, informed the thinking about the experience of those works in public space? Um, yeah, just in terms of the at night time with the distant things appear suddenly near, um, the lighting that exists around it is um, already predetermined by someone else's design from 20 years ago. So I was just interested in actually having to not design a situation of encounter for for nighttime that it would already cast shadows or create other situations a bit more subtly um yeah and and just to say also that um in some way as much as the like if there's different rhythms and this notion that you can immerse yourself in the rhythm of a piece or an artwork. Um, like I'm always, always a believer that that is quite a difficult thing to do because I also like the idea that public art is also about developing certain models of possibility or engagement that are useful into the future. So it's as much about thinking about what kind of spatial paradigms or conceptual ideas or 
uh, notions of artistic activity in public that you can try out. You're in a situation that you might have to critique your own shortcomings in when it's made in the end, but at, at least there's a situation there where you, there's a chance of experimenting in public, um, which is pretty much the last thing most cities do with every other thing that happens in them. Um, so th there's something there that is very useful, useful around the kind of genre of public art that's nice to mention. Yeah. Like one of the trips I made on the site visit was out of Melbourne to where some of the birthing trees were sighted and there was a road uh, near Ar Ar Ararat. Uh, there was a, a road being constructed that was going to destroy some of the trees. And the complexity of that situation, uh, there was a lot of protests out there at the time. Uh, you could see the rhythm and pat of the road going right over these trees. So um, those situations are not about clean, internalised rhythms. There, a lot of them is about cultural violence, and that exists within city situations as well. So to kind of derive rhythms out of them, sometimes it's impossible. But at least you can begin to think about other ways of looking at things or to try and be um, exploratory in an approach. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, so it's a nice question, I think. Um, and I, and I, I sort of definitely thought about the idea of like actually not seeing the work. You know, what, what, a, what about a, a, work, a public work that's just so slight that it's only there just occasionally, like it's just flicking on and off, and so that you're much more aware of the loss than the, the presence of it, you know, that you're not seeing something maybe you know, that you've missed something or you've lost something so that, yeah, that cultural violence or that environmental violence is, that, you know, just to create something that, yeah, like an aware, I guess a, a space that's a sort of um, an absence, I suppose. Um, I think you might have um, answered Max's question. Um, Max Delaney has popped a question in that kind of touches on what you've just been speaking about in terms of the contrast between the traditional public sculpture of the fixed constructed monument and the, um, the processes that you've been going through and the thinking around it. But I will just read it out because it's a beautiful question and you might have other things to contribute um, around the thinking. Um, comes with preamble. So given the idea of urban sculpture as a series of fragments and a form of conversation with people and place, and as a mode of reconstruction and assemblage, and the holographic possums, as Alicia says, art frolicking in the park. So the question is, I wonder what might be the implications and possibilities of this process of public sculpture as a means of making meaning and memories through conversation, collaboration, assemblage, sonography, and even magic or witchcraft rather than these traditional fixed construction, uh, constructed monuments. I think you have touched on a, quite a, like a, a large um, part of that, but I wonder if there's anything else you'd like to, to, to muse on. I think there's room for it all. Like I quite like there's some really classic plonkers that, I, you know, I really love because they're not architecture. There's something totally radically different, like, you know, Sydney's Ken Unsworth's Poos on sticks is a favourite, you know, like they're really important. And, you know, and I think 
all public art, it's better it's there than it's not, to quote Franz Best, because I think, I don't know, there's something um, where it starts to shift the reality of everything, whatever it is, temporal or permanent or, you know, it's just really important, I think, that you have kind of a, a thinking happening and, and, and a reality shape-shifting happening sort of with public art and whatever formal intent it takes, it's just um, it's, it sort of shakes things up. We need it, I think. Like there, there's something nice to say about the, the, just to go back to the process that we were both very lucky to, to be um, part of. Um, you know, normally when you have... Um, you come up with your idea and then you have to impose that idea because it's been accepted by a selection committee or um, a system. Um, you have to impose that idea onto a site or location. And of course, very hilarious uh, things can happen as a result. And it's not, that's not an entirely broken system by any degree. Um, <laughs> They don't want to necessarily knock it down but of course there's a lot of different ways of doing things you know and so I suppose the opportunity here was being able to um, kind of in somehow think in a very public way um, and, and like gradually come to an acceptance that this was the piece you know or this was the artwork that you you and the team involved wanted to share with a public, you know, and I, I think that's a very interesting way of working. Um, just the other kind of thing to say is that um, the great thing about like being involved in public art is there's always like really, really funny stories happen to public artworks for good and bad and indifferent, you know, and they're kind of part of our shared ritual of public space in some sense, like, it's very funny, about 10 years ago here when the recession was in, in full um, flight, uh, a lot of the metal sculptures around Ireland were being stolen at night time uh, for scrap. And um, so there'd always be these reports in the newspaper that someone with a big van drove off uh, with the sculpture. So a lot of the commissioning bodies here decided to say, okay, the next commission, it's only going to be made out of stone because nobody can really move the stone as easy and it's worth less money in the scrapyard. So these kind of day-to-day -day realities shape the making of public art as much as um, the notion of the overture or the kind of thought pattern that pushes on a progressive society. And it's nice to balance the two in my mind. Yeah, amazing. Um, I mean, we could go on a whole different tangent of conversation around <laughs> public sculpture, but I, I just picking up on one of the things you mentioned there um, in terms of um, what one of our um, uh, partners, the City of Melbourne, has partnered with Testing Grounds and their projects have been talking about um, the city as studio, and it was really nice to hear that reflected in the way you've described the working process. I wonder, before we wrap up, whether there was you know, a couple of words from each of you about um, whether this process of um, working has either radically transformed your practices or, or changed the way you think you'll, you'll work with, um, you know, the public uh, 
realm works in the future or, or whether it's sort of case by case, I guess, moving forward? Yeah, I think it's it has kind of transformed things, you know, like it's really opened it up. There's just, yeah, I think the process of being really um, like that incredible experience of having that two weeks to to really consider the space at, from so many angles. We even got a visit of the um, the Peter Doherty Institute up in we you know we got to go into the Ebola lab you know like because Liz had thought yeah that let's try it let's see if we get in there like it's all part of that site so you know for everything from the bluestone to the to the eel you know the pathways of the eels to the you know the law courts or the law dudes up there sort of really getting pissed off with the skaters down there carving up you know the you know, there were so many really rich ways of looking at a site. So I think that was really important in terms of um, opening my thinking up. And, yeah, it was, it was amazing. And um, I think Melbourne City Council has really developed something special there. And, um, and to have a poet <laughs> guiding us <laughs> was pretty pretty nice because poetry is so important in this instance I think in all instances but yeah and for you Sean and then Alicia I, I won't say too much more so I think Michaela said it really well and nicely there um I, I guess kind of that notion of um what impact it makes towards the practice um it's a real long-term question and that's, there's a great joy in being able to acknowledge that, that um, thoughts that happened in Melbourne over the last couple of years will reappear in different ways over the next week or the next decade or whatever, you know? Um, so that kind of, um, well, that, that investment in artists is a very rare situation and a lot of encounters I've had over the years in public art scenarios um, that it's a lot more than a deliverable and that it kind of positions artists in a really interesting situation to make a, a public contribution. Um, so, so they're really great things to, to, to come away with and no, even though the work is a temporary one there, it still lasts for a year and a half and there's a lifespan ahead of them and what, what, what will happen. You know, so that that's all very exciting. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so great to hear you both speak about that. And I think one of the most important things for me was just the the sense that the city of Melbourne valued time and valued mm. the research and thought because every artist does research we don't go into any project blind we really um, immerse ourselves we research as much as we can so to have that um, sort of you know, the conversations going on was just a nurturing process and to say this is what we do we value who you are and what you do so an investment into art can only be be a good thing and I I look for the art in everywhere so to see public art in, in little corners in, in big spaces is just such a precious thing and I'm so glad it's valued. Amazing thank you all so much for your time and your generosity and your wonderful 
uh, narration of such uh, a process and, and your wonderful projects. Um, I feel lucky to also be able to let people know that um, if they haven't already seen these works, um, they can see them, as you said, for at least a year and a half, um, but also on Wednesday, the 16th of February, um, ACA is presenting uh, Huang Tran Nguyen's work, Worker, a participatory karaoke performance, which you can also come along and that'll be a wonderful time to also see the possums in the trees uh, and the illuminated um, uh, installation by Sean Lynch. Uh, Sean, Michaela, Alicia, thank you so much for your time. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Thank, thank you. you.